0: So we are in week three of a series on sin, and uh, we're doing this series on sin. I'm not doing it in a typical sort of systematic theology way where you would cover, you know, sort of the different types of sin, sins of omission, sins of commission, the different words for sin, you know, hamartia in Greek is to miss the mark, transgression, trespass. I mean, all those things are great. Those are really good ways to study this concept of sin, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to take a look at sin as if um, we were kind of seeing it for the first time and really even seeing its practical implications. One of the things we've been focusing on so far is our tendency is to think of sin as breaking the rules, right? That's what we typically think. Well, I broke the rules. I broke God's law. And there's a sense in which there's truth to that. That is a piece of sin, but it's, man, it's far, far more complicated than just that. So uh, one of my favorite cartoons um, is Calvin and Hobbes. I'm not sure if you guys have ever read the little cartoon Calvin and Hobbes before, but essentially um, Calvin is the little boy on the front of the sled right there, and he's named after John Calvin, and uh, then Hobbes is his pet tiger, and Hobbes is named after Thomas Hobbes, who is a British uh, philosopher, and so these, you know, as you can tell, there's, there's already some depth built into this little comic strip. But uh, there was a particular comic strip that I read not long ago, and it was a conversation that Calvin and Hobbes were having while on a sled, sliding down this big hill, looking forward to Christmas. Listen to the uh, the text of their little talk. Calvin begins by saying, "I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Getting nervous about Christmas." Hobbes responds, "You're worried you haven't been good or good enough." Calvin responds, "That's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition?" How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say that I should get lots of presents? To which Hobbes responds, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. Calvin says, that's what worries me, right? <laughs> so again, the reason why I use that little discussion is because defining tr- sin just can be really tricky. It's way more complicated than just breaking the rules. I mean, again, on the one hand, it is. In fact, the Westminster Confession says this from the Shorter Catechism, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, it's both an omission, but it's also a commission, right? But as we've seen again, it's just more than that. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at sin, and we said that sin is a powerful and subtle predator that isolates us and then destroys us. So sin is a powerful and subtle predator that isolates us and then destroys us. And then last week, we talked about the fact that sin enslaves our will, our mind, and our desire, and that that slavery then threatens to destroy us and the ones that we love. So sin ultimately results in slavery. And hurts us and the ones we love. And today we're going to be looking at this concept, this idea that sin is actually relational. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray again that you would be here this morning, that we would um, open our hearts and our minds up to you. I pray, Father, that we would um, not think about other people and how it is that you might um, speak to them today, but I pray that we would open ourselves up to you and that we might ask how you might speak to us today. And Father, again, I would just ask that you would help us um, to encounter you, the living God. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, any of you who have been around Seven Hills Fellowship for a little while now have probably, probably heard me refer to the situation uh, where my grandfather was unfaithful to my grandmother. Of course, this was back in, you know, probably the early 60s. What was uh, remarkable about this is it was in uh, Mississippi. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist pastor. And so my mom was seven, and her little brother, her big brother, was nine, when my grandfather um, actually began uh, an affair with a woman in the church. Again, this sounds like you know something that could be turned into a movie, and uh, again, it was really dramatic and really sad. Uh, my grandfather and my grandmother ended up moving out of Mississippi back to Pensacola, Florida, but he continued an affair with this woman that he had met while in Mississippi, and then one day he just didn't come home. And he ran off, uh, left my grandmother, and went to start a new life with this woman that he had met back in Mississippi, leaving my grandmother alone and leaving my mom as a seven-year-old and uh, her big brother as a nine-year-old, right? And so you can just imagine, again, how painful and how difficult that would be today in 2018. But just think about this you know, 60 years ago, how this would have played out in southern Mississippi in a Baptist church context. And one of the things that I've realized after living in sort of the the ripples and the wake of the sin um, for my forty six years of life, is I've realized that his sin wasn't just breaking the rules, but it was very very personal, right? I mean, it, it, it literally just almost ruined my grandmother's life. She died a couple of years ago in poverty, right? And so his new wife, he was he became an engineer after um, leaving the ministry, but as You know, new wife retired in relative financial comfort, right? Her life was kind of good. My grandmother, on the other hand, had to be taken care of by my mom and my dad for 20 years. They, you know, paid for her needs and expenses and took care of her when she was in a home. For really the last 15 years of her life, she had vascular dementia. My mom and dad would go over to the home uh, twice a day. They'd go over in the morning and then they'd go over in the evening. And they did that every day for years and years and years. There was a tremendous cost upon my mom and my dad. There was a tremendous cost upon my grandmother, right? What's interesting is when my grandfather um, left, not only did it cost my grandmother um, in a thousand different ways and cost my mom and my, my uh, her, her brother, but even his family stepped in to take care of my mom and her big brother uh, when my grandmother was working, and so it, it cost them. And it's just I can't even begin to go into all of the ways in which his sin impacted Uh, my mom, my family, again, it wasn't just breaking the rules. It was vastly, vastly personal. In fact, I remember when I was 22, I was graduating from Covenant College, and I had decided to go to Covenant Seminary where I was going to become a pastor. And a buddy of mine and I went down to Pensacola, Florida um, to hang out at the beach and stay with my grandmother. And while there, I told my grandmother, I remember sort of where I was sitting and where I was talking to her, And I said, uh, you know, grand, grand, I said, I've decided that I'm going to go into the ministry, I'm going to seminary next year. And I thought, you know, here's this Southern Baptist lady who loved to sing hymns, um, and all, you know, it was just this hyper-spiritual person. And as soon as I told her that, she just broke down in tears. And I remember as a 22-year-old kind of being, not knowing what to do with that, like, I don't know what's happening here. But I think what was going on with her, is she was reliving the pain of, you know, sort of that decision that her husband had made, and, and I think she probably was thinking about the fear of what would happen to me if I went into ministry and all those things. Again, I can't even begin to tell you the degree to which my grandfather's infidelity wasn't breaking the rules, but it was severely personal, and the effects of his sin are still felt in our family over 60 years today. I mean, just, just tragic. Sin is way more than breaking the rules. It's deeply, deeply relational. It hurts God, And it hurts others. What's interesting is that Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15. David already referred to it this morning. It's called the story. We typically call it the story of the prodigal son. But it can be talked about as the prodigal God. It can be talked about as the, the two sons, however you want to refer to it. But it's in Luke chapter 15. And it conveys any number of different things about the gospel. But one of the primary things that this story that Jesus tells, one of the primary things that it conveys is this truth that sin isn't breaking the rules, but it's deeply relational. So let's jump in. We're going to start at verse 11. And before I start reading verse 11, uh, know this. In the audience are uh, sinners and tax collectors who are actually coming to Jesus. They are able to see their sin, and they're repenting over their sin. Also in the crowd are Pharisees and teachers of the law, or scribes, who are sort of the religious good people of the day, and they don't know what to do with the fact that all of these sinful people are coming to Jesus. They don't know what to do with that, but what they do know is that they're kind of angry about it, right? They're, they're, they're upset, they're frustrated. Jesus, how in the world could you let these dirty, unclean, sinful people into your presence? How could you welcome them in? And Jesus responds by telling this story. Again, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. So again, here are these two boys. One is older, one is younger. And Jesus very much intends for us to contrast these two boys. In fact, that's what he intended his audience to do then. Here we're introduced to the younger son. He comes to his dad and look very quickly at how he addresses him. He says, give me, give me my share of the estate. It's, it's a total demand. It's not a request, it's a demand. He demands his inheritance In his mind, the father owes him. He's entitled, right? And typically, an estate would have been divided between the sons at the death of their father. And so two-thirds of the estate would have gone to the oldest son, and the remainder then would have been divided between the remaining boys. But in this case, there's just one boy. And so a third of his estate would have gone to this younger son. What's interesting is that Jewish scholars who study ancient Near Eastern culture argue that this request by the younger son, was tantamount to wishing that the father was dead. The audience, that is both the tax collectors and the sinners, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have been shocked by the audacity of this request. This is a a shame and honor culture. They would have been shocked by the shame that this would have cast upon the father. It was also very clearly a statement by this younger son saying, I don't want you but I do want your stuff, right? I don't want you, but I do want your stuff. And so the father responds this way. It says this. So he divided his property between them. Now, what's interesting is that word for property there in Greek is actually bios, which you're absolutely right if you're thinking that sounds like biology. And so literally in the Greek, what this says is that he divided his life between them, right? That probably was a not too subtle hint on Jesus' part The father would have had to sell off his land and his possessions to give this younger son and the older son their inheritance early. And land was tied to life and security and reputation, so the father would have had to give up each of those things in order to grant his son's request. And amazingly, that's what the father does. The father divides his life between these boys. Not long after that, verse 13 The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And so the younger brother just got away as quickly as possible from the father. He took the precious gift of his father's possessions, his life, and he squandered them in wild living. And that word for squandered means you just scatter around like it's nothing. And not only that, but it says wild living, and technically that language there is riotous living. And so imagine a scene from The Hangover or from Old School or from Animal House if you're from a different generation. But there really is this image of this younger son in riotous living, and he's just throwing this money around. His dad's life means nothing to him, right? Verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he, this is the younger boy, went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field, fields to feed pigs. And so the younger son runs out of money, there's a famine in the land, and so there's tough economic times, and things get so bad that he eventually hires himself out to a pig farmer. Now, this is not, you know, 2018, where there are millennials who want to get back to the land, and they want to, you know, raise livestock. That's not what this is, right? This is like a literal pig farm in a foreign country and not a Jewish country, And so for Jews, pigs were unclean. And so part of the shocking nature of this was that here's this young Jewish boy who hires himself out to a pig farmer. This would have been, again, shocking and shameful to the people who were listening, right? They would have been appalled that this Jewish son of a wealthy landowner would have begun working with pigs in his need. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating But no one gave him anything. And so you can just imagine these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these sort of hyper-religious good people saying or thinking and nodding their heads. Serves him right. Serves him right. Part of the reason I know that that's how they would have responded is because I've responded that way many times to people who have been younger brothers. Well, serves him right, right? That's what you get. Verse 17 when he, this is this younger brother, comes to his senses or came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so in his desperation, this younger son formulates a plan. I'm going to go to my dad, and I'm going to say, dad, I have sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, I realize the cost. And since clearly I've lost the right to sonship, clearly I've lost the right to be your son, at least make me a servant. Now what's interesting here is a slave actually lived inside the home of the person that they worked for. They got to sort of eat at the table, be with the family, but a servant was just somebody who was on the outside. And so what this younger brother was doing was he was basically saying, Look, I I don't even believe you can let me in the house again. But if you can just let me live in town, I'll come and I'll work for you, and I'll try to pay you back for everything I owe you. I'll try to make some some type of restoration to you. If you can just let me do that. That's his plan. So verse 20 says this. So he got up and went to his father. And again, you can just imagine the, the crowd there listening to Jesus, the sinners, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, the scribes, teachers of the law. You can just imagine, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, and you can just imagine them going, Ah, oh, he's miserable. Good, good. I'm glad he's miserable, right? I'm glad that your sins have caught up with you. He's going to try and repay his dad? Good, good. You should repay your dad. You owe him a ton. Good. He's aware that his sonship has been forfeited? You better believe it. It, it sure has. I'm glad this kid is suffering. Okay, Verse uh, second half of verse 21, 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now up until now the Pharisees and the scribes would have been on board with Jesus. This is a great story. We love this story. Shame on that sinner. Let him experience the effect of his sin. Punish him. And then all of a sudden Jesus story takes this twist that they were not expecting. And this father instead of punishing his son, has compassion on him. What in the world? Shocking, shocking, shocking. And this is the most shocking piece of all. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 21, the son said to him, ready for his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate, right? The father's thrilled. And so much so, let's throw a party. And this party begins and contrast this party with the beginning of act two. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. While the younger brother has been in a foreign land partying in wild living, riotous living, the older brother has been dutifully working. The song that Jefferson and the crew sang this morning is a great illustration of that. I've been working. When he came near the house, he, this is the older son, heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You've never given, gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? So the older brother hears the music and the dancing, and he asks the servant, What's going on? And when the servant tells him about his younger brother, the older brother's first response is to get angry. hate to tell you, but that's one of the common responses of us, us older brothers, is anger. It's not fair. Contrast his emotional response with that of the father, right? His dad was just thrilled. And then look at the older brother. He refuses to go in, Now, what's interesting, again, scholars, ancient Near Eastern scholars have argued that by refusing to go into this party, he would have brought shame on his father. He would have publicly disobeyed his father. This would have been a massive social and personal offense. And the listeners listening to this story, they would have felt the impact of that as much as they would have felt the impact of the younger brother saying, I want my stuff right now. What the older brother was doing was humiliating and offensive, particularly to the father. However, Rather than punishing the older brother, the father goes out to him and begs him, pleads with him to come in to the celebration. Come in. Listen to how this older son responds to his father. Look. He doesn't call him father. He doesn't call him dad. He just says, look. He speaks disrespectfully to his father. All these years, I've been slaving for you. I haven't been serving you out of joy Haven't been serving you because I love you. I've been slaving for you. He reveals that his relationship with his father has been like slavery. I've obeyed you. You owe me. I'm entitled. And you never celebrated me. You never gave me a goat, much less a fattened calf. That would have been just an exorbitant uh, thing to celebrate with. And he doesn't call the younger son his brother, but instead calls him this son of yours. And in other words, all the way through this older brother's discourse, what you can see is that he is angry with his father, and he's angry with the brother. He's even disowned his uh, brother. So the question is, what does this passage have to teach us about sin and even what it is that we should do in light of that? Well, I've already made this point about eight times. I'm going to say it again. is that One of the things we very quickly see in this passage is that sin is, is not breaking the rules. It's personal. It's relational. Sin always hurts other people, and it always hurts the heart, of God. So what do you do? Number one, I want to invite you, ask you, uh, request that you look at your sin this morning, right? The tendency is to hear a sermon like this and to be like, oh, I'm so glad my husband's here. You know, I'm so glad my kids are here because, boy, do they need to hear this. And I want to invite you to not focus on your wife's sin or your husband's sin or your children's sin or somebody else's sin. I want you to look at your own sin. And there's two ways to look at your sin this morning. The first audience that Jesus was speaking to and that I'm speaking to this morning are the younger brother sinners, right? And younger brother sins are obvious. Sex outside the bounds of marriage, drunkenness, lying, stealing. The list goes on and on and on. What may be less obvious to some people, however, is how they actually hurt God and how they hurt other people as well. Now, Originally, in the sermon this morning, I was going to use the book, The Giving Tree. If you guys are familiar with The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein, I do recommend it. It is a great illustration of how the sin of this young boy impacts uh, this loving tree that he's in relationship with, and that's a little more theoretical. And so I decided to actually use a real experience for my real life. I don't know how many years ago now, maybe four years ago now, um, Our car, my car, the Camry, was sitting in uh, the driveway of our, uh, of our house, and I went out one morning... And I realized that like, it was just trashed. And I was like, what in the world has happened here? Someone had broken into my car and stolen my wallet, which I shouldn't have left in my car, and stolen a charger and some other things. No big deal. But there was this real sense of violation that occurred because here I am sort of walking out to my car early in the morning and sort of my you know, safe place has been violated. And I thought, well, probably just some kid in the neighborhood, whatever. A few weeks later, went out to my car again. Somebody had broken into my car again. Same thing, change tray had been sort of upended and some other things had been taken. And at that point in time, I started to, you know, then go, oh, crud, this is kind of a pattern. Like, this is this is making me nervous. And at the time, you know, our kids would get off to, early, to school early in the morning. Um, Krista would get up early in the morning at this time to go work out. And so, you know, it was starting to make me feel unsafe, not just for me, but unsafe for my family, right? And so then, again, a few weeks later, same thing, went out, the car had been broken into again, and I thought, this is nerve-wracking, because what if they get a little more daring, and instead of breaking into the car, they decide to break into our home? What if Krista's going to work out one morning, and she goes out there, and the guy's breaking into the car, who knows what could happen? What if we're away from the home, and, you know, May's left uh, home alone doing homework or something, and the guy breaks into the home, what if, what, and all these what-ifs happened, And it really led to probably a year's worth of anxiety for me in all of these different ways. In other words, this simple little sin of breaking into my car, stealing my car charger, stealing my wallet, wasn't just breaking the rules, it deeply impacted me, right, emotionally and relationally. And and then that bled over into my kids and the way I interacted with Krista, all of these things. It was more than just breaking the rules. There was a real cost to this sin. It was a broken relationship. Sin is relational. It always hurts other people, and it always hurts the heart of God. Older brothers. Look at your sin too, older brothers. That's probably most of us in this room, by the way. The sins of the older brother are not nearly as obvious. Workaholism, you get paid more to do that. Moralism, you get to feel better about yourself when you do that judgmentalism, looking down on other people, idolatry of family, idolatry of reputation, idolatry of security. Like, those things all kind of work a little bit, right? And our culture rewards you for those things. It's so much harder to see those sins, and it's almost even harder to measure the relational hurt that they cause. But, like all sins, they also are relational. They also hurt God's heart, and they hurt those that we're in a relationship with, with, that we are with. There's a book written by two psychologists, and it's called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, in quotation marks. I love that. Mistakes were made, but not by me. And in it, uh, social psychologists Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson describe how within the context of relationship and even marriage, that a fixation on our own righteousness can actually be the most damaging thing to a marriage or relationship. Here's what they write. I think we got it up on the screen. The vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. Now, here's their takeaway from this research. From our standpoint, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personal differences, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love, Self justification is. In other words, the most damaging thing in a relationship isn't your younger brother's sinfulness, right? It's not wash, it's not forgetting to wash the dishes, it's not losing your temper with that other person. The most damaging cancer within the context of a relationship is self justification, right? Self justification is telling someone else, I'm not the problem. You are. I'm not the problem you are. It's an unwillingness to look at your own sin. It's the age-old sin of pride. Let me call time out here for a second. Remember what I said earlier about thinking, like, I'm so glad my wife's here today because she needs to hear this. So glad my husband's here today because he needs to hear this. So glad my friend is here because he needs to hear this. This is about you, right? Look at your sin this morning. It's the age-old sin of pride. Self-justification is not just Pride directed at our friends and family. Self-justification is telling God, my sin is not that bad, I'll take care of it. You know who you should be working on is my friend, my wife, my husband, my boss, my mom. Or you know who you should be working on really is those liberals. That's who you should be working on, God. Or those conservatives. Self-justification is arrogance. It's lack of humility. It's an absence of self-awareness. And it's almost always accompanied by a focus on other people's failures, right? So self-justification is it's very bad, it's very destructive. I tried to quote this last week. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I actually wrote it down this week so I could do it correctly. C.S. Lewis said this, Those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. Those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. Guess what the older brother was doing? He was thinking incessantly about the sins of his younger brother. And they were sins, right? But what he missed was his own sinfulness. So how is sin, how is your sin, how is your sin harming others? How is your sin hurting those you love? How is your sin hurting God? Sin is not just about breaking the rules, it's relational, it hurts other people, and it always hurts the heart of God. So look at your own sin, right? Younger brothers, look at your sin. Older brothers, look at your sin. How is it costing other people? How is it costing you? How is it costing God? And then finally, I want to invite you to look at the father. Again, I intentionally sort of didn't touch too deeply on the picture of the father in this story. Go back to verse 20. So again, the younger brother has been off living and wild living. Starving, runs out of money, he decides to come home, and realizes that he, has, he thinks he has no, no shot at sonship, and so he just thinks, maybe I can pay dad back. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, there is so much here not to miss. Number one, the father was watching and waiting for his son. How many of you in this room today need to know and believe that God is watching and waiting, longing for you to come home, right? Not so he can drop the hammer on you, but because he longs to be in relationship with you, his daughter, his son. Number two, when the father sees his son's filthy rags, he was filled with compassion. Now, just a reminder, a compassion is entering into someone else's pain so much so that it becomes your own. Compassion is entering into someone else's pain so much so that it becomes your own. What if you were able to see today that God looks at you, runs to you, he longs to be with you, and he has compassion because he knows that you're just made of dust, so the Psalms tell us. And he's filled with empathy and compassion for you so much so that your pain becomes his pain, became his pain. In an ancient Near Eastern shame and honor culture, little kids run, children run, women run, but patriarchs do not run, right? Patriarchs did not run. That would have required lifting up your robes, right? And that would have been shameful. And yet here is this father who lifts up his robes and runs to his lost son. It says he literally fell upon his son, it fell upon his neck. He gives him this huge hug. When Levi was about three years old, we were up at the reservoir at Barry hiking, and he got lost. It was actually my fault that he got lost, but he got lost. And so I had to run around the lake looking for him, and so he was, so he was technically missing from us for about 15 minutes. And when I finally saw him, Man, I ran to him, and I picked him up and gave him a big crushing hug to let him know how thankful I was that he was safe, right? Because I'm a dad. That's what any good father would do, right? It breaks our heart to think that our children might be hurt. It's heartbreaking to think that our children might be lost. And this good father just so happy. To see his son, he runs to him and throws his arms around him. He fell upon him and kissed him. What's really cool is that some ancient Near Eastern scholars here say that this behavior is almost more maternal than paternal, right? And so here is God the Father who basically says, I'm just, I just care about you. I'm just thrilled that you've come home. What if we saw God that way? That's what Jesus is doing, right? That's exactly what he's doing. He's not only saying your sin is relational, but he's saying, what if, what if this is the way that God actually sees you, right? Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandal on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began, began to celebrate The son begins his rehearsed speech and the father doesn't even let him finish. Love it. Doesn't even let him finish. (laughs) The best robe, the father looks and sees his filthy son covered in mud and pig slop, wearing what once had been clothing, but now were nothing more than rags. And he says, bring my best robe. Cover his shame. The father looks down and sees his muddy, scared, scarred, calloused feet, and he says, put sandals on him. Servants and slaves went around barefoot in their poverty, but the father refuses to treat his son as either ring, bring the signet ring, symbolizing that he is in my family, that he's my son, and so in this one fell swoop, this father says, shame, covered. Poverty, all I have is yours. Disowned, never. You are my son, and just in case somehow we missed the Father's heart for his Son, Jesus adds in a party, a celebration, showing that God doesn't forgive grudgingly, but that he is elated when we come home. So this morning, we have bread and wine, which is a symbol of a meal, right? Symbolic of the Passover meal. But part of what this meal says to us is that God is a father who loved us enough to send his son to die on the cross that his body might be broken, his blood might be spilled as the Passover lamb's blood was spilled. But the declaration of this meal is that for younger brothers who come home, that God willingly forgives you. He longs to forgive you. In this meal, he longs to run to you and to throw his arms around you. That is a powerful message today, right? Your sin is it's not a barrier to God at all, right? Not at all. He can forgive you in a heartbeat. All you have to do is come to him. But it's not just for the younger brother. It's for the older brother too, right? It's for the older brother who's been judgmental. It's for the older brother who's only looked at other people. It's the older brother who's tried to justify himself through his good deeds, If you, the older brother, also is willing to run to Jesus and say, I've sinned against heaven and against you, then this meal is just as much for you. That forgiveness of the Father is just as much for you. But it's only for those people who have come to that point of recognizing their older brother's sin or their younger brother's sin and looking to Jesus for their only source of forgiveness. And so that's the one qualification for this meal is that it's only for those people who have repented and trust in Jesus. And so if you're not there today, I would ask you simply sit back and watch the people of God, the, the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, as we receive this forgiveness that is offered to us in this meal. In a moment, I'm going to read the words of institution. And what I'm going to ask that you do is while I'm reading these words and um, while some music is being played, I'm going to ask you simply sit back and you think about your sin, Repent of your sin, confess your sin, but I also want you to think about the Father who longs to forgive your sin. "'For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "'This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.' In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, "'This cup is the new covenant in my blood.' Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment, let's pray.